and then we will spend some time in the word together. So let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we once again come to you and we thank you so much that the victory is already won because it was won in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have made us to become alive and that you have placed us into Christ and that it is Christ who is our wisdom. We just ask that as we look into the book of Proverbs that we will um, understand wisdom, that we will understand what wisdom looks like, that we will see the practical application of wisdom. And Father, may your spirit be working in our hearts to reproduce your son, Jesus Christ, as we go out and we live uh, among our neighbors. We just thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen. (laughs) Well, I did have this really smart uh, illustration, but when we couldn't find the slide because I had put up the wrong slide, I figured can't really talk about my own intelligence right now, can I? No. Let me just ask the question. Just think of the question on the screen. Are you wise? Just think about that for a moment. Are you wise? Would you characterize yourself as a person who's wise, who walks according to wisdom? Now, we're going to deal with what a wise person looks like in this sermon, and we're going to look in Proverbs 13. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. And I will say this, that a lot of what we're going to cover this morning deals with um, stuff we've already covered in the past couple months, and that's okay. Uh, We always need to hear some of this stuff again. And so if I go quickly through some of these verses, just understand that I, I kind of already assume that You kind of already listened to some of the older sermons, and you're kind of up on some of this stuff. And I'll I'll explain a couple things and a couple nuances, but we're going to try to to move uh, uh, quickly through this. Uh, And some of you go, yeah, that's not a wise statement either, Caleb. We already know how you preach, and we already know that you're going to spend the first 45 minutes in the first verse and then rush through. So, Lord willing, we'll be able to get through these 10 verses. But in in these 10 verses... I really am wanting to ask five questions, five questions about answering the question, are you wise? And as we probe this question, I'm going to ask five more questions. The first question we're going to ask is found in verse one. And the the question is, how do you receive discipline? When you are disciplined by the Lord and you are, uh, uh, you feel the conviction of sin, how do you respond? How you respond to that determines ultimately whether you're wise or not. In verses 2 and 3, we're going to ask, how do you speak? Do you speak wisely? Do you use discernment when you speak? That's going to answer whether you're wise or not. In verses 4 through 8, we're really going to deal with the question of ethics. Are you righteous? Are you ethical? Are you good? And we're going to see in different areas of life this sense of righteousness, this sense of knowing God, knowing his character, knowing his will, knowing Jesus Christ, and having that as, a, as your backbone, the thing which determines what is right, what is wrong, and what is good. Do you live according to that, or are you foolish and don't listen to it whatsoever? In verse 9, we're going to ask the question, because this deals with wisdom, do you bring joy to the people around you? Let's be honest, if you don't bring joy to people around you, if your life is constant mess and everybody's having to clean up your mess and do all sorts of stuff, if there's a, a, a whole swath of destruction 
from your life and broken relationships. The question is, did you really live a wise life? And then lastly, we're going to ask, how do you take counsel? How do you take advice? And that's going to be found in verse 10. So that's kind of where we're going. So let's just ask the first question in verse 1. How do you receive discipline? Now notice what Solomon says here in verse 1. He says, a wise son, literally, a wise son, his father's discipline. And so the New American Standard, I think, adds correctly uh, this, this accepts it kind of makes sense here in the New American Standard. We could interject uh, loves his father's uh, or listens to his father's discipline. Um, it's the idea that a wise son, when, he's, when he does something wrong and his father disciplines him, a wise son takes it to heart and accepts it. That, that's really the, the sense. And then notice the second part of the parallelism, but a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. So first question that I have is, How do you receive discipline? Here we see that a wise son or a wise person listens to his father's discipline, listens to discipline. Now, we've dealt with this concept of discipline a couple times in the book of Proverbs. So just as way of review, remember that when the Lord disciplines us, it is very different from the popular notion of the discipline of the Lord. Normally, when we think of the discipline of the Lord, it involves some sort of bugs living in our house Frogs jumping up from the river and lightning and fire and a whole bunch of bad things happening, right? And that's what we normally think of as the discipline of the Lord. And so when something bad happens in someone's life, like maybe the pastor found a couple rats in his house and supposedly somebody could say, well, what sin did he commit that caused the rats to move into his house? Because a righteous person would not have such a plague come upon his house. That's sometimes how we think about the discipline of the Lord. That's not what the scriptures teach about the discipline of the Lord for the believer. The discipline of the Lord, as he disciplines the believer, is like a father towards a child. It's corrective. God is concerned with us living like the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to destroy us. He doesn't want to hit us with plagues. He wants us to live correctly. And how does he correct us? How does he discipline us? Through the word. As you and I read the word each day, we should feel this sense of conviction of sin. That's the discipline of the Lord. When you listen to a sermon and you feel the conviction of sin, that's the Lord's discipline. Anytime that you do something that's wrong and you feel that guilt from that sin, that is the Lord and the Holy Spirit disciplining you. Now, there's some times where the Lord will allow the natural consequences of your actions to play out. That could be the discipline of the Lord. Sometimes the discipline of the Lord is to let you continue in a sin. That's how the Lord disciplines. So when we think about this discipline of the Lord, we must remember as as, as his children, he disciplines us correctly in the way that we need it wisely. And as he disciplines us, we should listen to the disciplines and the rebukes and the conviction that we find in God's word. Now, it's also true, too, that when Solomon says a wise son accepts the, uh, his father's discipline, there, there's also some wisdom here as well, just speaking naturally. Um, our heavenly father is a perfect father. Earthly fathers are not. Even those who strive to be righteous and godly and strive to do what's right, parents are not perfect. Uh, we have all had parents. We know they're not perfect, and 
Some of us have been parents, and we know we're not perfect, and we've watched other people who had parents, and we know that they're not perfect. But as Hebrews says, we do the best that we can, and we discipline as we see, as, it's, as we see, right? And a wise child will listen to some of that discipline and will augment his life, right? Will repent, will listen to that advice. There's numerous times when I'm disciplining Ezra and AJ, and I will say to them, you might not fully understand why you're being disciplined for this right now, but when you grow up, you will understand that I am saving your life, right? The very thing that I'm telling you to do will one day be incredibly valuable. The people who do not learn the skill that I'm trying to teach end up either dead or in jail. So you must listen because this is an important thing. So, so as, as parents, we do this. And, and the goal of a parent's discipline is not to destroy the child, but is to cause them to see the evilness of their sin, to move away from that sin, and live for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's the goal. And that's what God's discipline is for us. And as wise children, as believers, we should accept that discipline, right? And learn from it, repent, confess our sins, and continue to walk towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a wise person does. Now, notice what a foolish person does. And unfortunately, we probably do this more than we would like to admit in church, right? Notice the next part. But a scoffer, someone who is belligerent, rebellious, arrogant, a scoffer, one who does not submit or subject themselves to God's word, he does not listen to a rebuke. So think of this. Here is one who is arrogant, who says, who are you to tell me that I'm doing something wrong when they are clearly in the wrong? We've all known children like this, right? We've all known children who refuse to be disciplined by their parents and just utterly forsake and are rebellious. But I think, I think also on a grand scope, haven't we seen this in our own life where there are numerous times where God's word tells us to do something and we go, I know what God's word says, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And then when there's that conviction of sin, there's that moment. Have you ever had that moment where you go, you know what? I think if God was here and I could explain it, I think he would be okay with the sin that I just committed. That's, that's the attitude of a scoffer, right? A scoffer isn't always scoffing. His heart and his heart attitude is hard and rebellious. So the question is, how do you receive discipline? That determines whether you're wise. If you take the discipline from God's word, if you take the discipline that comes from here, from Christ and from, from, from who God is and from his will, and you listen to that and you receive that and you confess and you repent and you live according to the scriptures, you are wise. And that's, a, that's an indication of a wise person. If you are constantly disobeying, when you feel that conviction of sin, you bury it, you try to run away from it, you act like Jonah and do everything in your power to not submit to God's law, you're a scoffer. So that's the first question. Second question, right? How do you speak? Notice in verses 2 and 3 that Solomon deals once again with speech. By the way, I, I wish Solomon wouldn't talk about how a wise person is one who speaks well and discerningly. Because the more that I study in the book of Proverbs, the more I realize I don't speak with a lot of wisdom or discernment, right? Hopefully I'm getting better, but yeah, no, not perfect here. But notice how Solomon talks here as he talks about the speech and, and the discernment in speech. 
Verse 2, from the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. The, 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 the language itself, we could, we could literally say this. It's, it would have the sense of, if you speak well, you eat good. That's kind of the sense here, right? You speak well, you eat good. The idea is, is that a wise person knows the right words to say at the right time with the right spirit, and he does it in such a way that he doesn't destroy his life, but actually enriches his life. Now, this is much more than just trying to manipulate somebody. This is somebody who's thinking of God's word, who's thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking of his law, thinking of the characters of God, or the character of God, and and thinking about the situation and saying, what is the wise course here? What's the wise things to say here? Uh, a, A wise person realizes that it's probably not the best to go and just lambast somebody who does something I don't like. I could probably say what I need to say in a way that is wise, that is loving, that is Christ-like, and doesn't burn a bridge, doesn't ruin a relationship, doesn't soil my reputation or the reputation of Jesus Christ. That, that's what I think he's talking about here. It's choosing one's words carefully, and it's for this ultimate good, right? But notice this, the, 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 the second part of this, the contrast of the foolish person, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. So a wise man is thinking, okay, how do I say this? How do I do this to fulfill God's word? What's the appropriate way to say this in this situation? Uh, What's the best way that's the best outcome for everyone? And and the words that I'm going to use is for the best outcome. A, a, A fool goes, I don't care what's the best words. I don't care about my speech. I am going to light everyone up. I'm going to tell everyone off. There's no guard on their mouth. There's no, there's no mechanism in their mind that says, probably shouldn't say that. There might even be a mechanism, and they go, I don't care. I am going after another person, and my desire is to hurt another person. By the way, this could be f- the, the furthest thing from Christian love. This morning I was thinking about Christian love and thinking about love in, in, in the sense of a church and, and, and thinking in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is talking about the church and how the the church of Corinth was struggling with loving God and loving others and acting like Jesus Christ. And then there in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about the worship service, right? And he's talking about how how a church should come together and use their spiritual gifts to build up one another in love. And and I was thinking of that chapter 13. Let's just go there quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. In, In the midst of this in the midst of this passage and telling them about, about their worship service, he kind of gives them this rebuke description of love. The, the sense is, you're not being loving, and this is what you should look like in your worship service. And so, though 1 Corinthians 13 is often read in, in a lot of marriage services, it is actually a rebuke for those who are not acting in love in a church service, Right? So just just notice here, we're going to start in verse uh, 4. Just think about love and think about how we talk and think about loving speech. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account wrongs suffered. 
It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things, love never fails. So just think about that in, in, in the light of wisdom and speaking. And if I'm speaking from wisdom, in essence, couldn't we say that we're speaking lovingly, right? It's patient. It's not flying off the handle. It's kind. It's saying something in a kind way. It, it's, uh, it's not jealous. It's not acting out of jealousy or wanting to hurt somebody. It's not, it's not pointing back to the person speaking, right? It's not bragging about one's accomplishments, nor is it just inflating oneself, right? It's not arrogant. It's not acting unbecomingly, meaning that it's polite. It doesn't seek its own end, right? A wise person isn't seeking just the best for him, seeking the best for everyone. It, it's not provoked, Right? It's, it's, not, it's not sharp. It's not trying to provoke someone to an action. It doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Isn't that our favorite go-to in the midst of an argument? That whataboutism? Somebody says something about you and you go, Oh yeah, well what about that time? That's not, act, that's not speaking from wisdom, nor is that necessarily speaking about from love. L- love wants the other person to be edified and it's easy for us to think about what aboutism. Well, what about what you did? You did something. I'm not apologizing until you apologize. And the other person says, well, I'm not apologizing until you apologize, right? It doesn't, it doesn't promote things that are unrighteous, right? It rejoices every time that it hears truth. It, it bears all things. It, it, it believes the best. It believes that God can work in a situation and the best outcome can can happen. It hopes that God can work in a situation. It endures. It's willing to stay with a person, willing to, willing to be with them as long as they're willing to, to work and move towards Christ, right? This, this would be a wise speech, and this would be loving speech. And so when I think of Proverbs 13.2, and I think about a wise man who's, who's, who's trying to say the right words in the right situation that are good and edifying, He's speaking in love. He's speaking like the Lord Jesus Christ would speak. Uh, the, the foolish do the opposite. Now notice verse 3. Verse 3, it says, The one who guards his mouth preserves his life, but the one who opens his mouth or opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So not only does a wise man know the right words to say at the right time, he also knows the right time to not say anything at all. This is probably more difficult than picking the right words to say at the right time, right? I mean, how many times have we said something and then walked away saying, can't believe I said, can't believe I said that. Oh, man. I, and sometimes just being quiet preserves your life, right? Sometimes you can protect yourself by not saying something. And I think that's the idea. A wise person knows when to talk, when not to talk. Knows the right words to say, the right loving Christ-like words to say at the right time. And when he needs to be quiet, he puts duct tape over his mouth and says nothing. However, notice the next one. It says, the, uh, the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So one knows it's better for me to save my life to say nothing. The other one says, I'll say whatever I want whenever I want to say it. And what's the consequence of that? It's ruin. That's not wise. That's not a wise way of, of, of speaking. In fact, Solomon in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 5, doesn't he tell us, let our words be few? 
right? And one of the things that he says is because God's up in heaven and you're down here on earth. So why should you let your words cause a rift between you and him? The sense is we need to learn to be quiet, right? I'm thinking of James chapter 1 as well. Remember in James where he says we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That, that is, this is a, a clearly something that in the New Testament we're taught, right? Think about it. With the same tongue, we can sing praises to God. We can say wonderful things to each other, walk outside, turn to somebody, and then curse our brother. That has happened thousands of times. That's the tongue. A wise person is able to reign in his tongue, right? So the question is, do you speak in a way that's wise? Now, there's another, there's another thing in the next couple verses. Are you good? And what I mean by good is, are you ethically good? Is there a sense of right and wrong? And does that right and wrong come from God's character? Does it come from the person of Jesus Christ? Does it come from his word? Does it come from time in his word? Is that where the sense of right and wrong comes from? And, 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 and do you live according to that standard that's found in God's word? So notice in verse 4. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Now, let me just comment on the second half of verse 4. Just looking around, I can tell I am the most diligent person in this room. I'm joking. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that. Notice when he talks about the soul of the, 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 soul of the sluggard craves. By, by defining the sluggard, he's defining somebody who's lazy, who doesn't want to work, who's not, who, who is willing to do something other than what he's supposed to be doing at that time. And so this is a sluggard. So the, slow of the, the, the soul of the sluggard, the one who constantly is lazy, notice what he does do. He, do, he craves. So he does nothing, but he wants everything, right? But because he does nothing, he gets nothing, Right? You don't work, you don't eat kind of principle. But isn't that true in, in, in any time that we've, we've talked to a lazy person, that a lazy person just sits around and all they do is want, 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 and they never have, right? And they're not willing to get up and do what's necessary to have. Now, some have commented that the, the, even, the, even the craving of the sluggard is, is evil, and I don't think Solomon is really making a treatise here on craving as being bad. In fact, I, we're not like some who believe that if you have a craving of something, the craving itself is sinful, right? The craving can become sinful when you desire to fulfill that craving outside of God's time or outside of his will, right? So we'll just take, for example, because I've, I've already mentioned it, let's just take, for example, the idea of food. There's nothing wrong with craving food right? It's when I desire to get food in a way that's outside of God's will, such as stealing it, or I crave an amount more than I'm supposed to have, right? That's outside of God's will, or it's outside of God's timing, right? It's outside of God's provision. That's what it is. So as believers, the idea of craving something is not necessarily sinful. It's how we attempt to fulfill that craving, which makes most of our cravings sinful, right? So I don't think Solomon is, is saying the craving is evil. Though a sluggard may crave something that is evil, 
but cravings themselves are not evil. I think what he's talking about is a sluggard has no work ethic. And so therefore he gets nothing. He sits around and is lazy and gets nothing. And then notice what it says next. It says, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Here, fat is actually rendered perfectly. That, that's actually the word that it's said. But I, I think it's probably better to make sense, we could say, is satisfied. So the soul of the diligent is satisfied. So the idea is, here's one who does not work. He doesn't do any work, but he craves everything and gets nothing. Here's this other man who does a lot of work who is living according to God's principles, has the fear of the Lord, and has a lot. Okay, So the idea is dealing with, with a work ethic. Notice then the next verse. The next verse. Um, in verse 5, it says, A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. So, a righteous man is a person who lives according to God's standard. Last week, we talked about this at some length as a reminder, once again, that we realize that no one is righteous by themselves. I don't just become righteous because I want to be righteous. I am righteous because Jesus is righteous, and I place my faith in Jesus. And when I place my faith in Jesus, I am given the righteousness of Jesus. And therefore, God then sees me as righteous. And then I have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word. And as I read the Word and the Spirit works on my heart and molds me into Christ Jesus, the outcome of that, the fruit of that, is righteousness. So a righteous person is one who is yielding to the Spirit and conforming themselves to the Scriptures, living a life like Jesus Christ. So a righteous person, one who's already saved, right, in our context, someone who's already saved, someone who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, because of the Holy Spirit and because our sense of right and wrong comes from God's word and God himself and his character and Jesus Christ, there is this desire to hate everything that is false and pretense in our life, right? Hate every pretense and falsity. We hate it in ourself. We don't want to be false. We don't want to misrepresent ourselves. We, like, we, like, we don't like having the pretense. We don't want to be hypocritical. And every time we see that in ourselves, we sit there and go, got to stop that. When we see it in others that we love, in our families, and in our church friends, right? We hate that, right? When we see it in our society, we hate it. A righteous person who knows what's right and wrong hates what God hates and love what, loves what God loves. Now, we can't just say, well, then he then goes off and then runs his mouth because a righteous person is also one who is wise and knows the right thing to say at the right time and say things in a way that will promote Jesus Christ and lead people to Jesus Christ, right? But inside, internally, there's this sense of, I hate falsehood. I, I, I hate that. I, I, I don't like that. I don't like that in myself. I don't like that in others, and I don't like that in my country. I just don't like it anywhere. Now, a wicked man has no qualm with falsehood. He's willing to be a hypocrite. He's willing to lie. He's willing to live with pretense, right? He's going to act in a way that's shameful. He's going to act in a way that's disgusting, that's going to hurt his reputation and, and, and hurt people around him. He, he has no such qualm. Why? 
Well, in a New Testament context, it's because he doesn't know Jesus Christ. The solution, friends, is not just to beat them over the head with the book of Proverbs. The solution is the gospel, Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, and as then as the Holy Spirit then indwells the person and works on the person, then the outcome is righteousness. That's the answer. That's the answer to all of the problems that we see around us. The answer is Jesus, more Jesus. The answer is more Bible, right? Letting Jesus work, letting the Spirit of God work. That's the answer. A wicked person who doesn't have the Spirit, they have no such qualms of right or wrong, right? Why would they? It's kind of interesting as we were talking about the book of Exodus uh, in our study of just a survey of the book of Exodus. There was one statement in the book of Exodus that kind of stuck out, and it was one that I, I never really thought about much before until this last study. It was when Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, and God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh made maybe one of the most profound theological statements that we normally just gloss over. But he says, I do not know the Lord, therefore why should I obey him? And I thought that is an incredibly astute theological statement. It's wrong. He should know the Lord. He should obey the Lord. But there is this sense that those who know the Lord obey the Lord. And those who don't know the Lord, why should they obey him? There's really nothing compelling them to obey him unless the Lord works in their heart. And so the wicked man has no qualms, so he's going to act in such a way, right? But notice what else in verse 6. Notice this, this ethical standard, the sets of right and wrong that comes from God's word in verse 6. Righteousness guards the one who is blameless. So there's this sense that a righteous person, this righteousness, this doing what is right and what is wrong, is a guard and a shield, right? There's a sense that, that people will, will not come after him, that, that his own righteousness will protect him against accusations. I think, I think we could even go a step further as far as an implication of this text and say that even righteousness is willing to guard those who are blameless, not just myself, but others who are blameless, right? A righteous, wise person says, I like truth no matter where it's found. I'm willing to defend those who are innocent regardless of who they are, right? If you're innocent, you're innocent. If it's true, it's true. If it's false, it's false. And if they're guilty, they're guilty. That's the sense of, a righteous, of righteousness, right? And so there's a sense where righteousness is willing to protect the innocent. Ah, but not so the wicked person. Notice what it says in verse 6. But wickedness subverts the sinner. Right? So if righteousness guards a person, if righteousness leads a person towards Christ, if, if, the, if, if it's the Holy Spirit working on his heart, then he's going to go back to the word, right? But the opposite is true. If you don't have that righteousness from Christ and you have that wicked depravity and that's the only thing you have, guess what it's going to do? It's going to skew you off the side of the road. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that our neighbors who don't know Jesus do absolutely every single wicked thing that they possibly could do. That's not what we believe. What we believe is that there is a bent towards sin. Everything they're doing is not, is not done out of faith. Therefore, it's a sin. It has this bent towards sinfulness. They have the law written inside of their heart. They have a sense of right and wrong put there by God. But the idea is the thing that drives them, the thing that will ultimately cause them to fail is their own wickedness, which causes them to leave the path, right? That's what I think Solomon is saying here. Now, 
And talking about this person who's blameless and talking about this one who guards his own path and and isn't subverted, Solomon kind of gives then these two examples in verse 7 and 8. They're kind of interesting examples. Um, But notice in verse 7 the example he gives. He says, There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing, and there's another to be poor but has great wealth. I don't think Solomon is just giving an observation of human nature of certain people who are not letting their PowerPoint work. I don't think he's giving an observation of uh, someone who is um, just of society. There's people that pretend to be wealthy and they're not. There's people who pretend to be poor and they're not. I don't think he's just giving some social commentary. I think, what you, I think the only way that you can understand this is understand this in light of verses 4, 5, and 6. That there's a sense of there's one who pretends to be rich and has nothing, but he's pretending to be rich out of the perversity of his heart, out of falsehood, out of a sense of trying to get something or an advantage over another. There's another person who is actually really rich, but they don't act like it. They just live their life. They live their life according to God's word. You would never guess they're wealthy. And then when you look into their life, you see that they are incredibly wealthy. Let me just give you an example. I I once knew of a man who uh, told his whole family, if you do what I want, I can make you a millionaire. He would say that over and over again. I'll make you a millionaire. And the family all were like, well, yeah, I'd like a piece of that, right? So they would do extra favors for the guy because he would constantly say, if you do this, I could make you a millionaire. If you do that, I could make you a millionaire. If you don't do that, I'll make you a millionaire. Well, when the man died and the family started to look for his millions, they found out that there was not millions. There wasn't tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. The dude had like five grand, right? Right? So basically what he did was he pretended to be incredibly wealthy and get people to do things for him by suggesting I could bequeath you a whole bunch of stuff if you just do what I want with absolutely no intention of doing that, right? And and I thought of that when I thought of this passage of somebody who is willing to pretend to be rich to get something where I've met other people who you would never know that they have lots of money, and they const- and, but they're righteous, and they live in a way that's very, very humble means, and they give away a lot of money for, for missions, and they help out, and, and you just go, wow, this is incredible. I will also say this. There is also a spiritual dimension to this. Think of this. There are some who pretend to be rich in Christ, but don't know Jesus, or they don't have a walk with Christ that they should, but they pretend to be rich. There's others who, when you talk to them, they don't pretend to be rich. They don't pretend to be rich in Christ, but as you come to talk to them, you realize they know Jesus. They know the Lord. This happens too, and I think that this is an implication of the text. We can do this spiritually. We can pretend to be something that we're not, to get something from the church, right? to get something from other believers. We can pretend to be more spiritual than what we really are and not really be spiritual. And there's others who, they really are spiritual, but they, they, don't, they don't go around flaunting their spiritualness, right? They don't go around showing everybody, look at all my Sunday school awards, perfect attendance. 
By the way, did I tell you how many Bible verses I memorized? Right? Nobody, that's, we don't have to do that, right? We should be in Christ, and Christ should be enough for us and satisfy, and we should live according to the Spirit. Now, verse 8, there's another and somewhat confusing verse, uh, really hard to understand. It says, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor bears no rebuke. And there's a lot of different ways that people have tried to explain it. Personally, I think what Solomon is saying here is this, is that a man who is wise and is diligent will be satisfied. And he's wise with his money. He's wise with his decisions. And it's, and because he's wise, when there comes a time, a life or death situation, he has protected himself from his wisdom. Therefore, he can pay a ransom for his life. However, a poor person who is, in this context, a sluggard, somebody who does not work, someone who already has a fuse, refused to listen to rebukes in their father's discipline, they will hear no rebuke. Not saying that nobody will come and rebuke them. That's how some understand this. I understand it says they will not listen to a rebuke. So the sense is people have told them, if you continue to do what you're doing, you're going to end up in the poorhouse, and they go, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you at all. They put their, they put their fingers in their ears. And so the sense is, when, when, when a life or death situation comes, the poor man acted foolishly and was lazy and was a sluggard, and therefore he has nothing to give to save his life. Whereas a wise person who was wise with their money, wise decisions, made wise life decisions, according to God's word, now has a protection and a shield from bad times. That's how I understand that. So the question is, are you ethical? Are you good? you spend time in God's word? Do you look at Christ? Is Christ your standard of what is right and what is wrong? Is that something that drives how you act and how, what you talk about and how you behave? Now, there's another thing. Notice in verse 9, does your life cause joy? It says, the light of the righteous rejoices. So the light here, I see this as the life and works of a righteous person. So the light of the righteous, the life and work of the righteous person rejoices. Not only does the Lord rejoice because of the good works and he's pleased and he has, he has favor towards the righteous person, the righteous person themselves will look back at their life and have, they won't have a lot of regrets and they'll say, look, I lived a life that was pleasing to the Lord. I attempted to follow his word. I gave my life to him. I, really have, I don't really have a lot of regrets about things that I've done and decisions I've made. I, I'm rejoicing uh, because of the Lord's work on my heart. And others will look at that life and go, Wow, look at that guy. That guy's been an incredible joy to know. That, that's the sense I get, right? The light, the life and works of the righteous rejoice. There, there's a sense of rejoicing, and the righteous person will rejoice because of the work that the Lord has done, and, 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 and it, it brings good things. However, for the foolish person, but the light of the wicked goes out. So the sense is where the, where the righteous give off light and joy, the wicked give off darkness and gloom, right? So one is a joyful thing. The other one is an incredibly gloomy thing. One is vibrant and full of life. The other one is gloomy and destructive, and you're constantly getting calls of, hey, I'm in jail. Can you come bail me out? Hey, I'm in this problem. Hey, I'm in this problem. Hey, I'm in this problem. And they just soak up the energy of everyone around them. 
right? That, that's, that's, the, that's the contrast here, both polar opposites. So the question then is, if you're wise, do you live your life in such a way that's a joy to others around you? Or when, you, when your car pulls up and people see it, they go, oh, they're here? Okay, this one's going to be a little bit of work, <laughs> right? This one's going to be a little bit trying on the, on the sanctification. I, I think wise people are always looking to edify others. They're always looking to, to help others and help others grow. And we all want to be around those people that help others grow. But then there's this last question. How well do you receive direction? Notice verse 10. It says, through insolence, through arrogance, through rebellion comes nothing but strife. So an arrogant person who's rebellious and refuses to listen, that person in a situation will only cause strife, disunity, fragmentation. That's what a fool does. Because a fool is only concerned about himself. He's so selfish. I only want what I want. And because I only want what I want, it doesn't matter if I have to hurt other people in the process of getting what I want to want or what I want to get. So that's insolence, right? That, that, that's what... I don't care what I'm doing. And when people come and tell him, hey, you probably shouldn't do that, he goes, I don't care. I'm right because I know the right way. You can't tell me the wrong way. But notice the, the, the converse. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. So those who are wise are those who listen to godly advice. Where do we get godly advice? Well, first... Starts in the word, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's, this is God's word to us. This is where he reveals his character and his will. This is where godly advice begins from God himself. So when you need advice, the first place you should go is to God's word. You should search God's word. What does God's word have to say? That's where we should spend our time. Where else do we get godly advice? We get godly advice from spiritually mature people, right? This past week had an issue with uh, some insurance company things and car things. And uh, I, I immediately texted a whole bunch of people I respected for some advice. And I said, hey, keep me in prayer. Got to make some wise decisions here. Um, just pray for me. And I'll be honest with you, some of those guys came back and gave me some incredible, incredible advice. It actually helps us navigate through a lot of situations, right? Why would you not ask for advice? We're not perfect. We don't know everything. We're sinners. Doesn't God put us inside of a church full of like-minded believers that we can go and bounce ideas off of and say, hey, what are you thinking about? Somebody this week just said, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Can I get your advice about this particular situation? There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's what the Lord would want us to do. I think that's what wisdom would want us to do, to talk to people, but not just talk to people, but talk to spiritually mature people who know the word. That is the right way to do this, right? And so a wise person goes, yeah, I don't know everything. There's a lot of people who have a lot of, they've already lived through this. They've had some experience with this. They're going to help me through some of this stuff. That's wisdom. And through spiritual problems, yeah, there's nothing wrong with asking somebody, hey, biblically, this is the situation I'm in. What do you think the Bible would have me do in this situation or Jesus have me do in this situation? So the question is, how well do you receive directions? So the question is, are you wise? Um, As a believer, I think we could all look at a passage like this and unanimously 
say with all the vigor of our heart, nope, I'm not wise. Nope, don't do this stuff perfectly. And what's so amazing is that when I look at this, really the only person that could fulfill this is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, I don't know of any other person that acted this way perfectly other than Jesus Christ. And just allow me to go back to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's this incredible statement here that I think is so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Paul's, Paul's already said to the, to the church of Corinth, God didn't choose you because you were smart or you were noble or you were mighty. Rather, God chose the f- foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And then he makes this incredible statement in verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that just as written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I think this is incredible in our discussion of wisdom. Are we wise? Nope. But notice, what I fail to do in my own flesh, God in his power through Jesus Christ did. Notice in verse 30, it says, but by his doing, not by my doing, I didn't put myself into Jesus. I wasn't capable of putting myself into Jesus. But it's only God who is powerful enough and righteous enough to put me into Christ. And and the assumption here is by him putting me into Christ, it's then at that point that Jesus then becomes to me wisdom from God. Jesus was not wisdom to me before God put me in Christ. But once he put me in Christ, now Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, the embodiment of what does it look like to be wise. He is the way of wisdom. He is the way to God. He is the perfect life and the perfect lifestyle, the perfect reaction. Everything in wisdom that I think of as wisdom is in Jesus Christ. He also becomes to me righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, why did God do this? Verse 31. So that, just as is written, let him who boasts... It assumes that all of us boast. It assumes all of us have a sense of arrogance. But the issue is, we're going to boast, but we're not going to boast in our ability of putting ourselves into Christ. We're not going to boast in our own wisdom. We're not going to boast in our own will or our own intellect. I'm not going to boast in me. I'm not going to sit around going, I'm the wisest person that's ever lived. Who am I going to boast in? God set this up so that when I boast, I'm going to boast in Jesus Jesus is the hero. Jesus and God is the one who has worked on my heart. And he has worked on my heart so that I have the desire for wisdom. I have the desire to do what's right. I now have the ability through the power of the Spirit to be obedient. And so the question is, how do we become wise if we're not wise? You can't. But the Lord, Jesus Christ, will work on your heart And as he works on your heart, the outcome will be a wise life. So your responsibility in this is then to avail yourself to the words of Christ, to the thoughts of Christ, to be yielding to the Spirit. And as you're yielding to the Spirit, spending time in his word, praying, as you're doing this, the Holy Spirit will so work on your heart 
that in your life, slowly, you will begin to resemble our Savior, who is the embodiment of wisdom, and you will look like Jesus Christ. That's how we become wise. That's the solution. So, we saw Jesus Christ this morning, and we saw the perfect wisdom. And so the question is, are we wise? Nope. But Jesus Christ is, and he will make us like himself. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that you've lavished upon us. We thank you for your word that teaches us wisdom, teaches us the right way of wisdom, teaches us the right way to go. And we ask, Father, that as we live, that we would spend time in your word, that we'd be yielding to your spirit. And as we yield to your spirit, your spirit and your word would be working on us, chiseling away all of that stony, fleshy part of us, and that would then reveal your son, Jesus Christ, as you make us more into your son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that we would be encouraging one another and encouraging one another to live for you and spend time in your word. We thank you and we love you in your son's name. Amen.